Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 162. This episode is with two former guests of the podcast, Daniel Guzman, who is the head performance coach at LAFC, and also Yuri Pagel, who is now head of strength at Ajax. And it was great to have the lads back on the podcast, especially together. And I've got to say, hands down, this was the most enjoyable podcast episode that I've recorded so far. I absolutely love the chat with the lads. Um, my idea for this podcast was to create a um, or talk about if we were to create a football or a soccer combine, what would it look like? What would the um, test be that we used and sort of go against the norm? discuss some possible alternatives to some things that we do, um, talk about some of the common tests that are used at clubs, whether they are the way that we would go with them or whether we go a different route, talk about the key attributes that we should test and also um, how that looks across the season as well, how the data should be used after these tests as well and how do we actually make it impactful and then we wrapped it up with I put the lads on the spot and said right we've got a soccer combine what would it look like and obviously it's tongue-in-cheek we're not saying that there should be a combine um, used in football at all but I just thought it was a good opportunity to get a really good discussion going around some of the testing and monitoring and screening that is used within the game and just a bit of an alternative approach to it as well and the lads gave an absolute quality opinions and views and experiences on some of the stuff that they do um, so it was re- it was such an enjoyable chat and we could have gone on for hours on this one so I hope you enjoy it. Just before I get to the podcast Just a few things. Firstly, thank you very much for everyone who came out to the event at Leighton Orient. Um, It was a great evening. Two brilliant presentations from both David Johnson and Jordan Tyra. Those are now available to watch back on the community. And also some really good discussions as well. We opened up loads of uh, group tasks and discussions with everyone. Everyone was contributing. It's exactly what the evening's like. So it was great to get down there and run that event. If you want to come to one of our events, our next event is on November the 16th at Newcastle United, St. James's Park. And we have got performance consultant Dawn Scott presenting on the USA's because obviously Dawn used to work for both the Lionesses, but also the USA as well. She's going to be presenting on the USA's preparation for the 2019 World Cup, which they, they actually went on to win that tournament. So really excited to hear from Dawn at that event. There are tickets still available. So if you want to get yourself a ticket, go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tag at the top and you can purchase yourself a ticket for that event. We've already got coaches from Middlesbrough, Newcastle, Sunderland Ladies, Nottingham Forest Women, loads of great coaches coming already. So jump on that event. And just finally, and probably arguably most importantly, I just want to give a huge shout out to everybody that is raising money for Prostate United. Um, we're only, what, six days in as I record this, but there's an incredible effort on fundraising. I just want to give a special shout out to both Ross Burberry and Stephen Gilpin for setting up the Prostate United. They've raised an incredible amount of money. And just as I'm on it now, live, on as I record the podcast, it's over 40 grand they've raised, which is incredible. And obviously, they're only at the start. 
of this month as well. So the, the money that they're raising is unbelievable, but the effort from all clubs and all practitioners across clubs is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to post a link for anyone that wants to donate. Just go onto the notes of this podcast and they'll, I will post the Prostate United uh, link in there. So please go and donate every little counts and they're raising funds for an absolutely unbelievable cause and there's plenty of sore feet going around at the moment as well and legs so please support everyone that's involved with it so I just wanted to give a big shout out to those guys but that is enough of me rambling now let's get into this podcast this is honestly like I said the most enjoyable one I've recorded so far so I hope you enjoy it here is episode 162 with Daniel Guzman and Yuri Pagel Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 162 and I'm delighted and this is a podcast I've been looking forward to as well because I've welcomed back onto the podcast two former guests. We have got Dan Guzman and Yuri Pagel. So lads, thank you very much for coming back on. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Thanks a lot. We've got a a fun one tonight. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because... I came up with a little idea a while ago about talking about designing a soccer combine. Not in the fact that we're actually going to try and get it into clubs, but just because I think it can open up some decent conversation around the way we test, the way we screen, um, and possibly some alternatives to traditionally what clubs and coaches have done. And there's no better... No better coaches, no better practitioners than these two to discuss it with. So I'm delighted they're on the podcast. And I'm going to get straight into it because I know there's going to be some class conversations in this one. I've already said to them, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to be the sponge in this episode. Um, and I want to get straight in. So just, uh, just before we start, I will mention the roles that the lads are in. They have previously done podcasts with me before. But Dan is the head performance coach at Los Angeles Football Club. And Yuri has changed roles since last time we spoke. He's now head of strength at AFC Ajax. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Yuri, yeah, let's start with yourself. I wanted to just have a little discussion about um, some of the key attributes that you feel we should test with players and probably that are traditionally tested um, with players just to start things off. Yeah, I think that's a, a very valuable question um, because it, it basically starts a conversation about, you know, what should we be focusing on with our training interventions as like the, you know, uh, we could call it the, the physical uh, development staff. Um, for me, the guiding factor here is, of course, one, I want whatever we're, what we're doing is going to improve important performance in sport or at least improve the likelihood of important of performance in sport. Um then second after that, I want to make sure that whatever assessment we're doing is that it's going to be prescriptive and it's going to be descriptive in nature. So the assessment basically has to give us an idea of where the athlete is currently or needs to go to. And then it also needs to have some kind of influence on the training intervention that's about to follow. So what we oftentimes see in practice is that um, we test for the sake of testing. So very simply put, we want to have as many numbers about something as we can possibly get. I mean, whether it be for the sake of validating our own existence um, within a staff or um, trying to find reasons why someone might or might not be progressing. But if an assessment doesn't tell us anything that influences our process, 
by definition, to me, it is probably disposable. Um, so if you're going to be investing your time into assessing or testing, it probably needs to be the stuff that's time tested and needs to be the stuff that's highly likely to influence your, uh, your programming or your training interventions. So if you're going to look around clubs, you're probably going to find a lot of variations of jumping assessments, whether that's counter movement jumping, um, whether that is uh, drop jumping or some kind of other RSI tests. Now, whatever tools we use for this could be a ton of different things. Um, some clubs will have, you know, the higher budget ones will have uh, force plates to them available, giving them far more mate, uh, or uh, metrics about, you know, stuff like asymmetries, uh, about what's happening to generate the impulse that generates the jump height, um, the ground contact times, all that kind of stuff. Other people might have to use a MyJump app, you know, very cheap. Uh, some people might use a GymAware. So there's various ways of doing this, but we can probably say most people will do some counter movement jump testing and RSI testing. Um, besides that, you're probably going to see something along the lines of acceleration or sprint testing, whether it's maximal sprinting or coming closer, you're probably going to see that. Um, you're going to see some kind of strength test whether that's through an isometric myth eye pull or through RM testing, something we can just definitely discuss later. Uh, I have my opinions on those too. Um, some will test change direction, other will test agility, also something that's highly debatable as to which is going to be more important in your, your training process or influencing your training process. We're probably gonna have some kind of energy systems assessment so I'll try to do that highly specifically. Others might do it more generally. You know, some might do a walk bike test. Some might do a running test. Um, there's various ways of looking at it. And then, of course, we're going to try to assess and monitor through practice load if we have the tools available to us. Um, I think those are probably going to be top ones. Now, of course, if you're going to go a little bit more towards the medical side, um, you know, we're going to look at range of motion assessments for joints, all that kind of stuff. So... I think that's a bunch. Dan, I don't know. Did I miss some? I probably did. No, I think you're probably right on par. Maybe we add in some body compositional testing that the sports nutritionists might be doing that would benefit us as strength coaches. Uh, but other than that, I would agree with everything you just said. And what about to break that down into a little bit more detail now? Because when we're talking about things like um, strength testing, for example, um, Dan, what would your approach be or what have you seen maybe commonly used in terms of strength testing? Because I know we can go into uh, RM testing. I think that'll be interesting just to get your points of view on that. But just in terms of like movements used, uh, maybe screens uh, used, for example, what sort of things have you seen um, around testing strength? I would say from what I've done personally and what I've seen done in different clubs, you can do things such as uh, body weight movements, especially for younger kids, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, that kind of stuff. I don't know if I'd find value in that when uh, we all know the movement will change as you add load. Sometimes it's really difficult to get into a certain position with no load in a squat as it is. So I think that's kind of the base level of people don't even have the weights and they just want to say, can I get a strength assessment because I have no weight room? Um, on the complete other end of the spectrum, yes, you could do some max strength testing. And you already mentioned some, uh, maybe like an isometric version of a test or an assessment there. I think one thing that I would say is pretty important is to almost use your strength program as the assessment, which we can probably get into a whole lot more later. But does there necessarily need to be a marker of uh, an RM test for 
a 17 year old athlete if they'd never lifted before maybe that just comes three weeks later or four weeks later and i think a theme that we should probably come back to and discuss throughout the entire talk is are we discussing assessments that need to be done day one or is this an assessment over six weeks or is it a consistent assessment one thing that i personally made the mistake of is i've been the guy my first year right tested everything we had vo2 tests it took me six and a half hours to get all the players done didn't think it would take that long but we had the vo2 test we did the beep test uh we did a mass test then we did all the strength tests we did the speed test and i didn't test again until next year 12 months later and so I had all this data and I could tell people, look, I'm a strength coach. I have, I, I test this stuff. But when then when they say, how does it affect your programming? There was probably two things of everything I did that actually affected how I prescribe training in the future. So that's something that you already kind of already alluded to as well. So I'm just saying firsthand, I've made that mistake and learned why am I going to waste my time? And I don't need data to prove, you know, the worth of my job. But I, I do think there's value in discussion of, certain tests you can do now it's probably varied upon the equipment you have i mean your what would you say if you don't have any equipment what is your go-to if you have no gen i mean is it just body weight tests or or what are you looking at i mean without equipment that's going to be very tough i probably wouldn't even put value to it um i'd probably just assess yeah, right? maybe even look at something like a static jump versus a counter movement jump um, as like, at least I can tell whether someone's able to generate concentrically a lot of force in a short amount of time, that's going to be a little bit closer to strength than for instance, if I did a regular kind of moving jump, but I'd probably just toss it aside. Like you would do a movement screen and yeah. that'd probably be it. Yeah. So what about this? Cause I know a lot of clubs that I've talked to that are in different divisions or different stages in their process as a club. If a club comes to you and says, Hey, I've got a very small budget you know, where am I spending my money? Maybe that's a good discussion to have as far as do I spend it more on some of the speed continuum stuff or do I spend it on the strength stuff? You know, where would you, and there's probably an argument for both, but where would you spend that money with a low budget? I'm not going to put a number on it, but if we're trying to help someone to say, I have to pick and choose because I can't have everything. From uh, just purely from an assessment uh, perspective, like yeah, no equipment for assessment. Um, I feel like the good thing is there's a lot of, testing equipment that's pretty cheap. Like I said, if you're looking at uh, jump assessments, you can just use the MyJump app. I, I mean, I've used it for years and it is a hassle to use in a large group because you have to look at every single video and like yeah. get the jump out there and look at when their toes leave the ground and when they actually hit the ground again. Is it gonna be the best measurement tool? No, because by, if it uses fly time to calculate, which by definition is not going to be the most accurate uh, measurement of what the athlete is actually doing um, through movement strategy. We can basically cheat through that test. So it's not going to be ideal, but generally, I, you know, I just want to hit big and try to get as many of them as close to the truth as possible for my assessments to try to have an idea yeah. of where the athletes are. So something like that, I'm, I don't remember. I believe it was 10 bucks. And it just cost me a lot of time, but it didn't cost me a lot of money. So that's one. Um, I mean, even timing gates aren't really that expensive. Uh, it depends, you know, yeah. how, again, how much is the budget? But for instance, for strength, I would look at like a crane scale. I mean, you're not going to need 10K force plates. You can use a crane scale and you're going to get close. Now, it's going to yeah. tell you much less than the force plates will. But again, just like the MyJump app won't be as accurate uh, as valid as the um, 
the force plates, it's probably going to tell you a lot to influence your training process. And it's going to be the same for something like a crane scale skill. So I don't think we need all these fancy tools. Now, I'm not going to lie. It makes my job a lot easier, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they're not a total necessity to have, in my opinion. Is, is the yeah. one um, method or test that you guys like would prioritize? So what I'm trying to get at is, yo, you mentioned the tests that are used in terms of speed testing, in terms of looking at strength work, and you can approach those in all different ways. But is there maybe one or two that you'd look at and think, actually, these, these are the ones I'm leaning more towards, or does it depend on uh, each individual case? For example, if a play, if you know a player needs to work on strength, you're going to look more on that. If you know what I mean, like, what are there, are there some priorities? I, I do believe so. Um, I think now this might ruffle some feathers, but not everyone, even in elite sports, is going to have enough staff to fully individualize everyone's programs and actually let it be more efficient and effective than if they were to work in a group. And we all want to say everyone is a unique little butterfly and everyone needs something specifically catered to them. And to a large extent, yes, that's true, but you also need to have the staff and the quality of staff to be able to manifest all that and make sure that it actually helps them. Because if you're alone and you got 20 dudes in the same time at the gym, in the gym, and they're all 20 and 30 years old and they all don't really give a crap about the gym, let's be honest, is giving all of them their individual programs really going to be better than if you structure the gym to the point where you can help each and every single one individual because you're using uh, one selected lift or exercise or modality or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that group is better than individual at all, but what likely is going to be a little bit more quote unquote ideal is going to be some kind of grouping of athletes, right? We have a very large group and let's say I just use a cookie cutter approach and I say, all right, let's get all these guys stronger. What's going to happen? It's going to end up three different groups. One is going to be the non-adapters. One is going to be the adapters. And one is just the ones that are just going to stay where they are. Now, I don't want my program to be successful for a third of my team. I want to be as close to hitting the truth, right? So what they actually need as possible. The assessments can help me group some of these players into buckets. For instance, the ones that are strength deficient, some that might be a little bit more elastic uh, deficient or the ability to, to utilize elastic energy and others might be a little bit more, let's say ballistic deficient. So one would be, would be showing up in an RSI test or in a sprint test. Another might show up in a counter movement just jump test. Another might uh, um, show up in like a, a strength test, right? Where they are so far away from the mean that we can say, all right, this might limit or inhibit their ability to perform in the game of football. So we target that a little bit more. Right. So I can divide my group into smaller groups based on the assessments that I do. Now, for me personally, then I would look at speed. I would look at power and I would look at strength. Whichever three assessments you use for that or whatever combination of assessments, that's debatable. But I feel like those three are going to influence how you fill in the physical development training. Of course, understanding that energy systems testing is also there on the side. Now I can make this more complicated and say, I need a movement screen. I need this and that, all that kind of stuff. But I feel if I just talk about enhancing performance or not necessarily decreasing risk of injury, which is another 
uh, case in and of itself. I feel like speed, strength, power, having a test for all three to see where are the athletes deficient in regards to the rest of the group or position specific or the level that they're vying to play at. And from them, they're allowing that to drive how I write the training interventions for those athletes. Do you have anything to add to that, Dan? Yeah, I mean, it, as you're talking through that in the groups, we definitely know these buckets of players. And you even mentioned the ones that they're just going to the gym because they have to. You know, that's a, that's a, that is a portion of the team. And you're hoping at some point they will engage, not just buy in, but really engage in the process a little more. But if they're not, you're telling them, hey, can we check off some things? Because according to the assessment, which maybe you didn't even give 100% effort on, you just jumped because you're like, I got to jump real quick and warm up. And I said, did you hit the bike? Did you stretch? Nope. Okay. A two minute jump. And then even on our force plates, you know, what's that data look like? So that's, that's a, a whole piece there. Something I want to add on about the energy system development side. And this is just how in my own career, how I've gone back and forth. Sometimes we get these new athletes, these young athletes, and maybe they've never done a yo-yo test in their life. And so they don't have the experience where they can, you know, it's still, I think testing still a skill. They can somewhat navigate that a bit. Whereas we have a bunch of our guys who have been with us for a while and in different settings where they might be doing a yo-yo test six times in an off season, you know, at a certain progression. And so once they get there, maybe anxiety's down, maybe they understand, you know, when they're going to push, maybe they've learned the test and so they skip one on purpose because they can miss that one. You know, these athletes, they start to learn the tricks. And part of me, what thinks where I go with my mind about, the ESD stuff is, you know, do we even need to test every single athlete? Training is going to expose a bunch of guys like offline. Yori, we talked about like, just look at the heart rate response. If you have a heart rate monitor of a guy doing an APA. And of course there's different positional demands, but if they're spending, you know, 20, 30% of their, you know, 90% max heart rate in that drill. And there's some guys that are just chilling is it because the drills, you know, the way the drill is, or are they truly like, Hey, I didn't, I just played five V five small side with my buddies all season, all off season long, you know, and what is that there? So I think an assessment that needs to be discussed is almost an intake where Yori and Ben, we, you know, we sit down with a guy before we do anything and just say, how was your off season? Or cause we know what they went. Cause it's all over social media. Hey, it looked like it was fun. How was your training consistency when you were traveling the world? And we kind of know the options they had maybe, they're not as fit as they could be. Not that we all think they need to be at max fitness day one of preseason, but I think that can come back and guide the assessments. Because like you're saying, can we find a bucket that you might be deficient in in this moment of time and then put them into that bucket? When it comes to ESD stuff, I'm just not fully convinced that we need to fully do that. And maybe it's more specific to a certain group and saying, hey, over the past few seasons, we've noticed this about you. And so we'd like to test this. And something else you mentioned you were was saying hey sometimes you don't have the staff to carry out all these tests and what i've done in the past is i've said hey there's six guys here and only you six are going to do this one assessment because we think it's valuable we talk through about why are you doing it because we don't want to get the whole that's not fair that i have to do this and if you can build that culture and those discussions where you're saying all i'm trying to do is give you more individualization you little butterfly right we want you to be able to spread your wings and this is all for you but this is why you're doing this maybe you know, last year you weren't a starter. You weren't even in the 18 or the 20, right? You were a fringe player trying to break in. This is what's going to be best for you. Or if you're in that 12 to 20 now, you're not getting a lot of minutes, but there could be a time with an injury or you play well and you pop right into a 90-minute match. How can we start to close that gap? 
what assessments can I do that'll best give me the evaluation of where you're at there to, to push forward? Uh, and sorry, just sidetracking. That's just a thought I had with the ESD stuff. And if you have GPS and you have heart rate, I know you're always laughing because he knows exactly what we go through all the time. So uh, sorry, that's where my brain's going with that. It's, um, you know, I think I, there's two things that I think is really interesting there. I think one, like you said, if you gather data from practice, sport practice and games, that's going to tell you a lot about your ESD. Um, and especially, like you said, you know, stuff like heart rate recovery, especially if you put that next to like the intensities and the actual load that the athlete went through. And you see that, for instance, the load relative to the other players is low and their uh, time that they spend at top heart rate is actually very high. Then that, of course, tells you a lot. So, I mean, generally, if you're going to be, uh, if players come back in, most performance staff are going to have to do some kind of, might even call it arbitrary ESD test, because that's also what sport coaches or basically expect of them. Um, but I feel like in most sports, the most efficient way and effective way to target ESD development or ESD is through sport practice and actual designing of drills to make sure that we're targeting some of these physical qualities. Because I understand, especially if players are better than the level that they compete at, technically and tactically, what's going to happen? They're not going to have to over, like basically load the physical aspect because they're just so much better, right? You don't have to run the distance. You're not going to get into these high heart rate zones because you're just so much better. And we do want to prepare the athletes for the situation in which they are going to have to work harder because they don't dominate through technical and tactical. But we can do that through designing, properly designing drills in sport, which is always going to be more specific towards the game match demands than, let's say, putting them on the bike um, because we feel like they were deficient in a yo-yo test. Um, so I think that's definitely yeah. a good point. I feel like, you know, if you don't get the data from sport practice, then maybe there's more of a need to do a general assessment. Um, but if yeah. I can get the data through sport and matches, that's, that's a win to me. Um, then secondly, you know, like you already said about some of your guys with the assessments, it's a skill. Everything we basically do to a certain extent can be considered a skill. And that's, for instance, going back to your point uh, that you guys were discussing earlier about the strength testing. I don't like RM testing for the reason, are we truly increasing strength output or are the players just getting better at said skill? For instance, a squat, trap bar, deadlift, regular deadlift, whatever it may be, right? If the training tool that we use, the training intervention is the same as the assessment, then yes, highly likely we're going to see some kind of improvement in, during the assessment. Otherwise, I don't know what you're doing. Like if you're squatting and you use the squat as the assessment and the squat cell is going <laughs> up, like there's probably something wrong, but yeah. it makes sense, right? We test the squat, we train the squat, we retest the squat. Do we get better at it? Yes, likely. Does that mean that these athletes actually got stronger or just better at the skill of squatting? Now, I want to take that doubt away. So that's, for instance, why I personally prefer the isometric mid-thigh pool, because let's say my training intervention is a squat, which to a certain extent is going to be relatively non-specific to the isometric mid-thigh pool for the fact that the maximum effort that we have to give is in the bottom position of the squat, right? When it's actually the least favorable joint positions. And at this isometric mid-thigh pool, it's actually where in the squat you would be decelerating the bar because otherwise you'd turn into a ballistic object with a heavy bar on your back, which probably isn't going to be the best idea, right? So there's already some kind of disconnect between the squat 
and between isometric mid thigh pull. Now, if I've been training the squat and then I retest the isometric mid thigh pull and the mid thigh pull goes up without me doing or using the isometric mid thigh pull in between, and there's not really much of a skill component, at least far less than a squat or a deadlift, and they still get better, then I can reasonably logically state that my athletes got quote unquote stronger. Now, as Dan already alluded to earlier, we can get all our data for whether they got better in squatting through making sure we logging our, our working sets, right? If we just look yeah. at the load that they're getting done in training, same as we would on the field, we can see whether they're getting stronger, stronger, stronger. Don't even have to max out for that. We can use formulas, for instance, Epley's formula to calculate a guesstimated 1RM. And in the meantime, we can use the isometric methodic pool to kind of assess whether that increased strength in that specific skill or a multitude of skills, different lifts, actually transfers to another strength assessment, which to me is going to be far more valuable because I do not really see football players squatting heavy barbells on the pitch. So I want to see transfer of strength, not necessarily increased skill in one given moment. Some great points in there. Because I think some of it as well comes down to intent in testing, isn't it? It's the skill, but then it's also the intent. And it's like, you've seen it before when people are either going through strength tests or maybe even speed. Speed test is the one as well. Like, are we maximally sprinting or are we running quick? Like, there's a difference, isn't there? And it's learning that, um, it's learning that intent that they have to put into that. And like you're saying, with the skill of squatting or the skill of lifting something heavy and, and getting in the technical side, there's a lot more to it, isn't there, than just, than just testing every now and again. Um, so no, it's really, it's really interesting those points that you've made and I fully agree with them. And then there's the, also the other side, which you mentioned before about the culture, if you want to call it that of why we're actually doing the tests at those times, is it controlled by the practitioner alone? Probably not. Or is it coming from, um, other sources that they want that to be done? And I know it's certainly the case in the UK and probably I'm, I could be speaking out of line, but more than likely in academies, where certain boxes have to be ticked at certain times. So I know there's more of a battle to it than just what tests do we do? Do we do any tests? Can we get it from practice? Um, but it's certainly a, an interesting aspect of it of how much attention we pay to it, isn't it? And then we're going to talk in a little bit as well on how it informs practice as well. Yeah, I mean, that's I, to be fair, Dan, I didn't even get to that point. Like you said about athletes not really giving a crap about the tests in and of itself. <laughs> I mean, the amount yep. of times where I've had, you know, players come up to me and I was like, hey, did, did you just do uh, the jump test? And they were like, yeah, I jumped like 60%. And I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we, I mean, sometimes we fall into this massive trap, right? I'm, I'm sure you, you see the same, Dan, is like, we think as practitioners, we're like, oh, we care so much about these numbers, again, because it maybe even, quote unquote, validates our existence that we also assume that other people care. But to be fair, a lot of sport coaches don't care. And the extent to which the players care is even less. Um, so you got to understand if you're going to use yeah. a certain test and you need high intent to drive a true value that's going to influence your training process, then maybe doing it less frequently or being a little bit more clever in what you let them test instead of just giving them the entire test battery is going to help with getting the athletes to give that intent. I didn't want to disturb this podcast this week because this is a really enjoyable episode, but just very quickly, if you want access to both presentations from last week's event at Leighton Orient, 
They are both now available to watch back on demand on our online community. So David Johnson, West Ham United's Academy Physical Performance Scientist, presented on an iterative sequence of prevention for injuries in the growth spurt. And Jordan Tyra, Physical Performance Coach, he presented on developing future athlete how, what and why. So both of those presentations are available to watch back. If you came to the event, you can obviously watch it back. If you didn't, you can go and check them out. Two brilliant presentations from the lads. Just go to www.footballfitfed.com. If you're a community member, you can sign in there to your account. If you're not, you can get yourself one month free on the community by registering there. Just click on the community tab, sign up, and that'll give you a free month to check out all the content that's on there. After the free month, it's only £4.99 per month going forward. So cheapest chips, but loads of great information in there. Um, and go and check out not only those two presentations, but there's loads of other incredible presentations and webinars available on there as well. And also check out our latest discount from Hytro as well. I've just purchased one of their t-shirts. Absolutely brilliant bit of kit. So go and check that out if you are a community member. We'll get back to part two of the podcast with Daniel Guzman and Yuri Pagel. And I'll go back to something you said. The first thing you said when you talked about assessments, I wrote it down was number one, does it improve performance? That's all that, you know, the coaching staff and the players, that's all they care about. So we talked about the, like the rule of thirds. The third that is just coming in to tick the box, if I have to do this, if they see they start playing better on, on the field, typically they're not going to be like, oh, Yori, that was all because of you. But maybe they'll say there's something in the weight room or in this performance plan we're doing that's going to improve that. So number one, does it improve performance? If we can do that, and, and like you said, I think battle drive intent. We had, I mean, we do various phases like we all do, right? We try and build implied metrics in the weight room to – elicit some sort of response and I just noticed like guys doing box jumps we're trying to control that that eccentric load on them and but they're not really trying at all and then I saw in the corner of my eye we have a garage that rolls up and one guy just was like oh I bet you can't touch that and they they were jumping so hard to touch it and I looked at my strength coach and I was like we should set the garage to a certain height and just tell them hey you got to try three times right every set or something like that and sure enough there was a good amount of guys in the force plate. The numbers went up the next, you know, it, it's like, there's a lot of things that you could say could have improved that, but it was one thing that we changed. And we just thought some things that are fun where they're not going to think like, Oh, I need to jump as hard as I can, but their body's going to tell them if I want to touch this thing, I have to do that. You know, maybe we got to change assessments that aren't so rigid and it's not, you know, how do you measure that? Well, you just, you know, you could measure the distance and see how high they're touching, but they're watching these NBA players, dunk crazy in the games they're watching yours instagram him dunk over people and so then they want to get in there and see how can i go touch this garage gym so yeah maybe the the assessments can be fluid like you said is the squat exactly the same movement as ice pitch mid thigh pull no there's probably some similarities at a little point but not not really but if that improves the other one we know we're going in the right direction we actually have a a belt squat which we were fortunate to get through some means but that's something where guys aren't even touching the bar now, right? We just load that up under the force play and we just tell them just try and stand up as hard as you can at this joint angle. Uh, and most guys are like, okay, that's pretty easy, except it's kind of like the awkward, where do I put my hands during the interview? So we've got to coach that a little bit. But other than that, they got a good hang of it. So no, number one, like you said, improved performance. I think if it does that, then the coaching staff says, okay, I'm on board with this. And the players will say, yeah, let's do a little bit more. 
that was huge. I suppose yeah, it's sure. taking them out of that testing mindset, isn't it? When when they're doing when you're going into like a test and all like if you think about when players have done like a bleep test or something like that, everyone's in that state of oh we're being tested, we're being tested. You're being tested every single day in training, but this day is the important one. So I suppose like that's what you're saying about the jumping. It completely takes them out of that mindset, and they just they just then become the competitors that they are, aren't they? Like that they, they are all the think, time. Like, do I need to get a like a basketball hoop in the gym, which I know some clubs have, but do you get that? I mean, that's adjustable. And as I know, it's not like for our sport at football, but I'm like, okay, maybe there's something where we said we have a dunking phase where we're going to set the hoop at eight feet because not a lot of our guys can even palm a ball, you know, but you're going to dunk this basketball or a volleyball or something. And maybe that's part of the phase in the weight room and they just have fun. And we say, okay, you, you got to progressively overload this movement, but then you can get to go and jump and try and dunk. I don't know. Maybe that's something that people should start thinking outside of the box a little bit more. It's just something that seems like the guys would have fun and that's really good. The intent. Well, for sure. And I think that's, I mean, personally from my own experiences, I feel like high intent drives most of the adaptations. Um, it requires some kind of, oftentimes it requires a player, not necessarily to be logical, uh, knowledgeable, but to have high intent and have um, a good feeling for what they're doing. So they're not just going through the motions, right? So I feel like if we're going to do some kind of training intervention and you're basically turning on that mode by making it more competitive or making it more fun, then I'm for all for that because biggest thing in training is having that consistent intent over time, right? If yeah. we can get that done, whatever means, we're probably going to be doing a good job. Now, if we just hit the big rocks, and we're using various tools to make it more engaging, that's all good. Now, of course, the training or the assessments, we want it to be valid. We want it to be reliable. So we need a large amount of standardization. Like we couldn't say, all right, if uh, do like the, the best trick dunk, and that's going to be your assessment for your jumping <laughs> capabilities, because there's a very little standardization. But we can use yeah. something like jumping towards a target or onto a target that drives competitiveness and high intent that might enhance the adaptation that we want to see subsequently for the assessment um so i feel like i feel like that's definitely a big key uh, and we definitely also try to try to use competitive as much as competitiveness as much as we can to drive the intent for the assessments um, so i'm definitely not scared of putting their their uh, their numbers up in the weight room and showing them because you know they start to make fun of each other and when i pull out the force plates which for instance if I embed testing into my program, then it's not seen as like the separate entity. And it's just like, all right, we're prepping for practice today. There's the force plates. And once the laptop is out, I already have like three or four dudes next to me. Like, Yuri, 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 can I jump today? Can I jump today? I'm like, well, of course you can jump today. And <laughs> when jumping, I generally will have three and four of those other dudes standing behind me. Like, how much do you have? Yeah. You so like me looking at all the metrics and then for instance, uh, we're looking at jump height and then one of the other players will be like, yeah, but he jumped slower. <laughs> he looks at the other <laughs> oh, metrics. That's great. They're learning. Yeah, exactly. So I'll be telling them like, yeah, you, you know, you're jumping well, but I want to see a little bit more speed during the time that you spend on the ground. Right. Because consider like um, if you're on the field, you don't have all the time in the world. So we're not just looking at jump height outputs. We're also looking at the time gener or needed to generate that, that height. So then, you know, I'm sitting with the laptop. You got one of the players like, it would be slow. <laughs> so 
So, you know, that kind of competitiveness definitely drives intent. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's a, that's a big key also for the assessments. What about another area that we mentioned before in terms of speed testing? So I'm intrigued to get your, your thoughts on this as well, because when we spoke about sort of power, strength and, and creating that intent, speed is another one, isn't it? Where we need players to be, to be going at it to get some true values. What's your thoughts on it? Like, essentially, are there alternatives to literally just running speed gates where we, you feel like we can get a bit more that's going to maybe inform what we do um, in practice a little bit more? You know, I feel like um, a sprinting with timing gates is kind of like the standing counter move and jump, uh, especially with no arms. Again, we use it because it's easier to standardize. Um, it's relatively general, right? Players will even say that like, yeah, but I don't really run in a straight line. Uh, yeah, I don't really run for that long or I don't jump with my hands on my hips. And I can't even, I mean, they're not even wrong, uh, but for the sake of standardization, for the sake of standardization, it's probably quote unquote a it must, right? Um, now, are there different ways to assess these also for sprinting? Yeah, probably. Again, just like Dan alluded to earlier, if we're looking at practice data and game data, we can already get a pretty good estimation for it because let's be honest, there are going to be situations in clubs where your sport coach might not even allow you to do a separate sprint test because they might be scared of hamstring tears or even the players being scared of hamstring tests because if they're sprinting on the field during an 11 on 11 drill or they're sprinting on the field during, uh, during the match, they don't think about anything, right? They're just going, they see a ball or they just see a defender or an offender and they see, they just react. They're not thinking about anything, but yeah. when they set up with the timing gates and three sports scientists next to them, it changes. They tend to tighten up. Maybe even their mechanics changes, maybe they even hold back because they're afraid of the consequences of it. Even, you know, they constantly sprint and there's not really any, any higher inherent risk than what they're already doing. And if they've been prepared properly, it's not going to be an issue. It can still play in their mind or in the coach's mind. So if that's the case, you know, you could look at putting the timing gates on the field and incorporating them into drills, maybe uh, where you're doing more of a flying 10, for instance, um, of course, in those situations where maybe you're involving different aspects or facets or different tools to kind of get their mind off of things, it's a possibility. Now, what, whatever you're going to use, I'm not really going to go into that right now, but it could take away from the standardization, but it could still tell you a lot. Or you just look at the game data, you look at the GPS data, and you look at top end speeds reached. But then you could also say for a defender, if he hits very high speeds reached, Maybe that just means that he was dumb and out of position. Yeah. Um, so the ones that are actually very smart don't hit the high speeds because they don't have to get there. Yeah. So you do want to have some kind of speed assessment, ideally, and preferably one that is uh, reliable and valid, that is standardized, all that good stuff. But if not, which are just situations you might come across, then there are variations and options that you could possibly use, in my opinion. What do you think on yeah. that, Dan? Yeah, I would agree. I think you just you listed so many, you know, the politics of sport that you have to work around. You know, do clubs want to invest in the money for that? Uh, is the coaching staff comfortable? And fairness to them, there there may have been a club they were at where they had a bunch of hamstring injuries when they saw it, or their best player got injured doing a test on day one, and they were like, "I I don't want to make that mistake again." 
And I, I, I have no judgments for that because that was their experience. And what are you going to say? But I do think you talked about some workarounds with the GPS. I do think you can look at top end speed and, you know, people probably ask us all the time, Oh, what's the fastest game speed you see? And I'll usually say actually fastest speed is training, you know, cause we've done the standardized test where we're saying you're going to do your, your, your zone six or that high speed running the highest velocity you can get there. Uh, I do think there's things like you're saying, just like in the weight room, can we make it standardized, but also this is just part of training. So we're going to do a nine yard acceleration. We're going to do four sets of them and you're going to have X amount of rest because I'm going to have you all walk back and take the time. You can chit chat. When it's your time to go, you have to push. And then we can show them on the GPS after and say, Hey, out of the six accelerations we did, you actually hit this, you know, this band, the top band, band three, or, like you said, put it up in the weight room and list it out and say, okay, Daniel, you only got two out of the four and your, you got four to four and Ben, you got four to four. Okay. Well, was I slacking off or the truth is I'm just not a very good accelerator. Is that something I need to be working on? And so then there's some different discussions there where guys can come in and again, we can use an assessment to be uh, valuable to the training we use. So now I might say, Hey, you're a pretty strong guy, but I actually want you doing some sled work because they want you to be in that acceleration movement a little bit longer. And so we're going to lightly load you or, you know, we have different ways that we can do that. Right. So I think the GPS can be a good workaround. I hundred percent agree with the fact that in most of these speed tests, guys tense up or maybe they're really overshooting. Maybe they're not prepared to do it and they're going to hit a new max speed. And by them going 110% and they hit a, a, you know, a new max to acceleration, whatever it is that's going to put them in a worse spot or maybe at a risk for some inherent injury, which we don't want. So I think there's things that we can figure out as practitioners around the discussion of how do we make this standardized, but still something where the guys can almost bring down the anxiety about it is is kind of what I'm thinking. Yes. If there's a drill that uh, the coaches do for finishing and it's the same drill every time and we feel like we can get it, maybe that's the way to do it. But I agree. If you put up the force plates once a month, every time they see that, they're going to get all tight for the jump. If you put up the speed, you know, the lasers or timing gates, whatever you're using once a month, I think comes back to the fact of, you know, how can we get that involved? And I know we're talking about speed, but let me just really give a quick reference to uh, the Nord board or some sort of Nordic hamstring test. Well, what I've had the most success with there was someone, you know, a lot of athletes are really terrified of the Nordic exercise in general. We just did it every single week. We put the Nord board out every single week and was like, this is just part of training. You know, we'll ban them or we'll find a way to unload them. But eventually these guys can get to a place where they're loading their Nordics and they're not afraid of it. And they'll do it two days before a game. But it's not like coach two days before or it's coach two days after a game. I'm like, there's never a perfect time to do it, <laughs> but we got to find a way to get some sort of load that way. So uh, yeah, you are. I think you're right on. Can you make it just a part of training? It's not like a, this big assessment day. That's just training for the day. We're training speed. And you're going to get run up to the line. You're going to give me a 85% 90 and then somewhere between 95 and hundred. And let's just use that as a training tool. I think that's the discussion to have. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like uh, what you're saying with the Nord board and kind of then the same with, for instance, the, the timing gates on the field, it's kind of like a stress inoculation, right? We're just putting it there and we're slowly just incorporating them instead of just saying, okay, boom, here's three times a year where you're doing this and you have no experience with it. And it just looks you know, maybe it looks scary to them. Um, 
So for me, it's, it's been the same way because dudes would be like, oh, the Nordboard, oh, that's so scary. Um, and then especially because one of them will cramp up and then all the others are going to be like, see, towards hamstring. I'm like, no, that's a cramp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll be okay. Yeah, one, but once you do it frequently and they see the results and they see that nothing ever goes wrong with it, then they're going to be like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Now, of course, if they have some kind of um, some notion or idea beforehand of how, why they think it's bad, just like, for instance, like you said about the coaching staff with the sprinting and having some kind of experience in the past, if during testing something does go wrong, you're really losing them. So you have to make sure that especially the ones that are a little bit more susceptible to um, having second thoughts about some of the assessments is that you really, really use that stress inoculation. So just step-by-step step introducing them to it, explain them why it's safe, showing them through having other players do it, all that kind of stuff to the point where hopefully everyone does the assessment. And again, just like we mentioned earlier, um, with high intent. Let me ask this real quick, Yuri. Because it's something that I go back and forth on, and this is like not the science part of it all, but how often will you do the assessment before they do it? Almost as like a, look, guys, I jumped in the water and it's okay. Now, I know like a guy like you jumping on the force plate is probably more impressive to them. So like, come on, but are you cool with it? Are you finding times where you'll do the assessment yourself and say, okay, here's what we're doing, but you'll actually demonstrate, you know, a sub max or a max effort. Uh, I do think that's an important thing. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I One, yeah, I, I try to do every assessment uh, because it gets me a better idea of what it feels like and what they might experience. Now, it's only my anecdotal evidence. So what someone else might and might experience is totally different. For instance, Nordboard, I've seen guys with um, especially posterior knee issues in the past that really dislike the Nordboard. Um, so, you know, then we'll find another way. Maybe for instance, you do something with the force plates and kind of a hip extension assessment for the hamstrings. Yeah. I don't have that experience because I have been very fortunate with my knees besides patellar tenopathy. Um, so I can't get that through doing Nordboards, but I can do it myself. For instance, what I would do is I would do more than the protocol prescribes for us and then see what my response is the day after or the day after that right go yeah. through the exact same training session as them and then seeing okay what happens with my body now taking into consideration i did not have sport practice right because if i'm already experiencing fatigue and i don't even have the other stressors then they're mm -hmm. probably going to have that so i feel like playing around with it definitely helps you in, um, be more engaged into what the athletes might experience and then from my perspective uh, I, I try to do as much in front of them as possible because it drives high intent. So, I mean, yeah. you know, if you, if you have the jump record, then everyone's going to try to gun at you. So that's always a fun part. So I'll like, I'll write down a list and I'll just write my own name. Like, just make sure like, yeah, y'all, y'all know. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So then when that happens, it, again, it drives competitiveness and that's, that's, that's fun. And, um, I, I feel like that's definitely valuable. Yeah, for sure. And I want to jump in one more thing because I'm sure we've sat in the staff meetings before and at least the staffs that I've been a part of, it's kind of like everyone goes. If you're a physiotherapist, if you're a massage therapist, I don't judge. And if you have an idea and it could help us get somewhere else, let's do it. But sometimes you have the, oh yeah, they should be able to do a 10, you know, 10 or 11 minute yo-yo IR too easy. And in, in the most humble way, I'll just be like, have you done one of those recently? You know, you know, going from zero to an 11 minute 
that's that could be pretty difficult for some people, you know, and just kind of asking that question because the athletes will ask that question. You have the guys where it's like, well, did you do this? Do you know what it feels like? You know, like when I first started, you know, 10 years ago as an intern, I remember thinking to myself, if I want to work with NFL guys, I need to get as close to a 300 pound squat as I can minimum. So I know what that feels like. Like, is my form going to be perfect? And, uh, or like, what am I going to feel at the bottom of the squat? And so that's what my goal was. How can I do a lot of these max strength tests? And that way, when the question does come up, have you done this? You can say, actually, yeah, I know how it feels. And I can get, you know, on that test, I can give you some leeway or I might be like, you know what? I'm not going to have these guys do this, especially after a minus three session where it's their heaviest session of the day. It's mid season. It's probably not the time to do it. So maybe this is just more PSA from you and I to say any practitioner do all the tests that you're going to tell someone else to do, do it more than once. Don't just do it the day before the assessment, you know, really go through it a lot. And then maybe that way it's, it's not the athlete, the person to test it out, but it's you yourself. And that way you can say, okay, this is approved by us and we figured it out. So yeah, I think that's valuable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be fair, like if I were to give uh, young practitioners advice about that kind of stuff, I would definitely say, get your skin in the game. Um, is it a necessity yeah. for you to get on their level? No, not at all. Like you don't have to jump as high as them, uh, squat more, more weight than them, all that kind of stuff. But you do have to have some kind of experience in how that stuff feels and how get trying yes. to get stronger feels and how trying to jump higher feels and how doing something like a Nordboard, what that feels like. Because if you've experienced the cramp in a Nordboard and you see one of the players, he goes down very slowly and then you just collapse. <laughs> He's like, ah! And then you can say, yeah, nice little cramp, huh? I've had that last week. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, okay. So I feel like it helps. I mean, again, it's just anecdotal evidence. It is not the most important thing, but yeah. globally it can help you understand and engage with your athletes better. And that is going to have them trust you more. And if they trust you better, they're going to give you intent when you ask them or prescribe high intense stuff. So I feel yeah. like you just hit the nail right on the head. You know, maybe it's a PSA, maybe not, maybe it's unwanted. Sorry, Ben. Um, but that is, I, I feel like, I feel the same way. That's just super important. Get your skin in the game, please, please, please. Yeah. I think it's a great point. I think a lot of this as well is coming down to the psychological um, state you're trying to get your players in as well at that time, isn't it? Because like we're saying, tapping into that competitive edge of our players, whether that is against you or whether it's how we set up certain challenges and drills and just taking them away from that, um, I know things have got to be structured in terms of testing, but it's getting them out of that mindset of it's testing day, it's testing time. Now you've got to do the sprint. Um, and that's what we're talking about, isn't it? A lot of it does come down to the psychology as much as physically what is going on with the player because we see that every day anyway. Yep, exactly. Um, what about in terms of, we, we touched on it a little bit before, how data should be used? Because... I think Dan mentioned before, we probably all had experiences as testing and coming out with sets of data where we're like, right, that's great. We've got all our data. This is what our players are up to right now. But then where do we go from there? Like, when are we testing again? How do we make it impactful? And how do we have that real impact on the pitch of our players? Dan, you going to rush me? Yeah. Yeah, let me jump in your hill because obviously I was the one that has made that huge mistake. And don't send me back there. That was hours and hours of 
punched <laughs> in numbers back in the early Excel days. And just like, what am I doing in my life? I think number one, so I read this really good book a couple years ago by, I'm going to butcher last name, but John Dewar or Dewar called Measure What Matters. And it's a great book. It's more in the tech world. And that's pretty much like a bunch of examples of that, of what is going to actually be important to your business, your programming, your training. And then you should probably measure those things more often and see those things. Or what are the things that are important to the head decision maker? And you're going to say, okay, this is probably something I should measure there. So measure what matters. Uh, I will say just as one little caveat is that sometimes you're in situations where there's a manager and uh, I, I, you know, you see about from the world. Sometimes there's a manager that's like, Hey, I don't like this and we're not going to do any of this, or that's not valuable to me. Or maybe they say GPS isn't valuable. And it's not that you're trying to outweigh the manager, but maybe you're to say, you know what, for our purposes and rehab, this might be valuable. So we're still going to, we're going to monitor everyone, even though the coach didn't look at it all. I think there are situations where the data may not be usable in conversation to affect training, but it might be important over the years to have that just in case something happens as a change. You say, actually, we have been measuring this player for the past two years and here's what some norms are. So there probably is an argument to some point where you can collect data where it might just seem to collect, but there is a long-term goal at the end. I would say beyond that, you know, Yuri's already mentioned, sometimes there's not even a staff to be able to do all these different assessments. It might be you and 20 players. And if that's the case, you have to choose the assessments that you can run efficiently and that you can have the time to go through the data, understand what that is. So uh, let me just give a quick example. Something on the lower end, if there's a club that doesn't have access to GPS or that kind of stuff, RPEs might be your best solution. It might be the best assessment of training because you can just literally ask the athlete subjectively, how hard was that on this day? And if you can work that into behaviors and tell them this is not going to influence uh, if you start or how many minutes you play, we literally just want to know, was the easiest session of the week actually really difficult for you? So we can, we can figure out what's going on. You know, there's different scenarios that there might come up, but stuff like that, where I would say uh, an RPE will influence my training because I'll know if guys are giving me really hard, hard, sorry, high level exertions day after day. And I know that it's actually an underloading phase where we're trying to get the guys to recover a little bit more maybe there's a conversation to be had. And although I don't have GPS or any type of uh, assessment on the field, that's one thing I can take away. So that's just an example of that. But I, I think the conversation has to be around what are you using on a daily or weekly basis and not just a month to month that can be valuable um, with the exception of maybe like you already mentioned, some sort of isometric test. Maybe you're not doing that every week. Maybe you're doing it once a phase, but what are you using most often that's going to help influence training and help see, okay, I put this guy into a, uh, he's ballistically deficient. That's the bucket I put him into. Is there something that I can do to assess that over four weeks, five weeks, six weeks to see, are they getting better at that? Or are they getting worse? Or are they staying the same? Yeah, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, again, it just comes down to what are we testing and how does that influence our processes? And I mean, if I feel like it's it's definitely a possibility to fall into the trap into thinking you know the truth. Um, I think we can only try to get as close to truth as possible. So, and by the truth, I mean a as efficiently and effectively organized training process as we can find. Uh, we're trying to get closer, right? 
And the assessments help us do that. So if I utilize a set of assessments, which I think is going to influence my training process, so they generate some kind of training intervention, uh, like Dan said, we might have some athletes are, let's keep it simple. Uh, we have one group that's elastic def uh, deficient, so we're gonna give them more short coupling plyometrics. We've got one that's a little bit more ballistic deficient, so we're gonna give them long coupling. So let's say we see that from the counter movement jump, and then we got one strength deficient group. So we've tested that. And now that's gonna drive our training intervention. We're gonna give a different training intervention to those three groups. But if we don't reassess with these standardized tests that we used before the training intervention, then how the heck are we gonna know that the training intervention actually created any kind of desirable adaptation? Because again, why are we subgrouping our large group is to enhance the chance that we have adapters and not non-adapters or the ones that just stagnate, right? That's that's basically the goal. So if we're gonna if we're gonna have the assessment and if we're gonna intervene, then we have to reassess. Now, like Dan said, some assessments might be very fast. We might want to do it as often as possible. And other ones, especially ones that are a little bit more impactful, or maybe the assessments that influence training interventions that need more time to generate an adaptation. Maybe we do those more periodically every couple months, every couple weeks, maybe even uh, twice a year, right? It depends on the assessment. Um, for instance, if you're using the Norboard to kind of screen for risk of injury, you're probably gonna want to do that a little bit more frequently. Do you wanna do an isometric thigh pull every week? No, because we know it's probably not gonna have an adaptation that's so quick that in a week, someone is gonna generate 300 more Newtons in peak vertical force, probably not gonna happen. Right? So we're going to do that less frequently. So um, we definitely just have to look at first and foremost, the assessments, prescriptive, descriptive, influence our training process and tell us something likely about whether we're increasing performance in sport. And then we have to reassess to see whether we're doing our job. And again, that doesn't come easy because there's a lot of factors that could influence whether someone is driving an adaptation or adapting or not, right? lifestyle factors, what are they doing on the field? So many different things, but at least we can get closer to maybe knowing the truth than if we would not utilize the assessments pre and post training intervention. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And one last thing on the, you know, the interventions we're talking about, you mentioned the my jump earlier on. I used that in the situation before. It was a great assessment until I had to analyze all the data. And then I just thought, okay. <laughs> I don't know if I have the time to get through all this before I have to get to the next thing. So, and that was my mistake of not organizing that I needed help with that. So sometimes you have a great assessment, but the process to analyze the data is going to be way longer than what you have the staff for. If I have someone that can code in R and give me all this data real quick, then I'm going to do different stuff. But I think that's something that I'm pretty vocal about, about what do we do with the data? Well, do you have the right structures? to accept the data and spit it out the way that you want. Because if you don't, then maybe that's not the right assessment for you. You know, if, if you are somehow getting force plate readings uh, just straight to your computer with no software to tell you, you know, what's going on, you just see numbers and numbers and numbers, maybe the force plates are not the right investment. But if you do have, you know, the companies out there that can spit out and say your recent duration was here or your peak force was here, RSI mod this, we can start having different discussions. Yeah, I suppose that the complete other side of that is when practitioners are in a position where they have no cash, they've got they've got no equipment, 
that advice is perfect, isn't it? Because then we're stripping it back to bare bones. We're saying, right, you can, obviously money comes into it, but we're, we're looking at what can you do? What is going to be most impactful with you not having anything right now? And then, and then growing it from there. And there's going to be quite a few people in a similar-ish position. People might have some stuff. Um, but I think it's great advice for practitioners as a whole to say, like, keep in mind, we've got to make this, we've got to make this impactful in terms of what we're doing. And like Dan said, staff size and, and people that are available come into it massively, don't it? Because there's going to be a lot of people, again, listening that are, that are one of a team. Um, there's other people listening that are the team that, that there's that individual and that is them. So it completely depends, doesn't it? For sure. For sure. Lads, I'm going to put you on the spot because um, it's getting past my bedtime for one. Um, and also we can't have a podcast and call it the soccer combine without coming up with a bit of a combine test. So if we were going to go into fantasy land, and we were going to take a squad of players, not the squads that you're working with now, um, but we've got a squad of players and we have to set a combine style um, day for our team. I'm going to put you both on the spot and I'm going to get some, some tests from you because um, it wouldn't be right that we didn't. So who wants to go first? All right. So oh, he's in. he's in. He's been thinking about this. He's, he's been thinking about yeah. it. To be fair... I'm going the Dan Roots here a little, little bit here too because I'm going to use it as fun and I'm not going to actually use that standardized test. I'm going to make this fun. Oh, yes. Yes. The first thing I want to do is I want to replicate the NFL combine and I want the exact same outfits that NFL players walk in and I want football <laughs> dudes to wear the same outfits. Because oh, yes. Hilarious. All right. So that's how we start off with. I want the real tight tights. All right. Tights. Yep. That's, I feel like, the, the best way to assess. Uh, you assess. have to. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one. Then two, I mean, we could go for a hands-on hip standing vertical jump on a force plate, but nobody's really going to care. So what we're going to do is we're going to design a vertex, and that vertex is going to have a football hand, hanging there, and then this is a dude, dude that's going to reach for the highest header that's going to win, right? So that, that I feel like is one of them. Um, I feel like number two. All right. For number two, we're going to have to go a little bit more towards the goalie side. And that's going to be the biggest kick or throw from inside the 16. Again, drive okay. a little bit, of, a little bit of competitiveness. I know the, the goalies are definitely on the competitive side, so they're probably going to like that. So we can let them choose, see where they're going to do a throw kick, maybe do both. Um, so I think those two are going to be the first ones that I would look at now to be fair. If I look at the dudes that I've worked with so far in my career, they're all going to want to do the NFL bench press combine drill. <laughs> we might yep. have to scale it down a little bit. Like 125. <laughs> exactly. And stick it there. Um, yeah. For the strength assessment, I would actually stick with the isometric myth. I pull grab some straps, right? So we're not going to get some, arguments for oh yeah my grip yada da 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 and then what we're going to do is we're going to have a massive screen that says our peak vertical force right out in front of them. you know the the boxing things that you have at like uh at fairs and stuff where you can just hit yep. power yes. we're going to do the same thing we're going to do that with the isometric myth eye pull and then get a big old ding 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 if they hit more than four thousand newtons in peak force you might be onto something with this by the way that one right there 
That you better be patent that idea because that could be huge. I like it. I like it. With the recording, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? We're going to start a business. We're going to start a business. Um, so start with that. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, because dudes will always, everyone always compares sports. So you got to get, get the, hit the 40-yard dash. We got to hit the 40-yard dash. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put them clip by clip together with NFL players and then hopefully I'm going to have some of those real slow dudes that weigh 75 kilos, put him up against a dude, hundred kilos. And if he out sprints him and he ever tells me that weights make you slower and that they shouldn't be in the weight room, I'm just going to use him that clip, even though it's not really a good argument, doesn't make sense. Doesn't, doesn't matter at all. I'm just going to use that clip to say, Hey buddy, next time you don't want to lift, look at that Julio Jones, right? He jumps a little, he sprints a little bit faster than you. So that's, that's probably going to be the, the, the meat and bone. So we're going to have the isometric mid-thigh pull, big old screen. We're going to have the throw-ins or kicks. We're going to have some headers for the vertical jump. And then we're just going to have the good old 40-yard dash. And if they want to hit the bench press, they can do the bench press. But again, with, with the tights on and the 135 on the bar, I don't know if that's really going to be it. So again, this is not my standardized test. This is, though, this is definitely how I would do it last day of the season after Champions League. If we're just having some fun with it. That is class. That is class. Okay. Dan, no, no pressure. No pressure, by the way. Well, you've got to try and be that now. Okay. I mean, I'm just going to think about what do my guys ask me or challenge me to do all the time? So number one is a crossbar challenge from different distances, which I will say, you know, I can't, I don't want to spiggle what we do, you know, but this has been in a warm up before and it was successful, but crossbar challenge, at different distances, pure accuracy. Uh, again, for the keepers, I like the distance one. I'm going to go with how hard the velocity they can get on that shot. Because in my opinion, keepers are the best finishers in the league. That's mm. all they do every single day is just hit upper 90 to each other and see, can I save that? So I'll go one there. Uh, I'll go with the speed shot on that one. Of course, the bench one, because every kid – no matter what age he is, says how much you bench. It's just like a standard question. How fast are you, right? The last thing I'll probably say is when I think about like the most reactive agility, and I know there's companies that are trying to do this, but can you put someone in a small zone with a chicken or a cat or my son, someone <laughs> that's just going to be sprinting and changing direction, and can you grab them? And how long does that take? You know, little Midwest, U.S., Old County Fair style. <laughs> That is a good measure of agility. Can you get out there in the field and just grab that sucker and bring it back? The last one that has to be in there, because it'll just tell me, you know, mental toughness is a huge word. And obviously we all care about mental toughness, but just a simple ice bath. None of this, like just going down to your ankles. Can you go all the way head down and then pop back up, you know, from the shoulders down and just chill there like some U.S. surfers do, or I guess the international surfers. So I want you to duck down, get the ice cream head. And then just chill and see, can you go five minutes and then get your time? So uh, I would not personally like the last one there, but I would partake if I had to. That's all I got. Other than that, I would just say for you guys on the other side of the pond, you have to do some sort of assessment where you're flying six hours across your country doing something. Then <laughs> flying six hours back. Yeah. Because whenever the Europeans come over, they're like, wow, I did not realize how big this country is. I'm like, yeah, this is like Champions League for you guys, but every single week. So, uh, yeah, that's my assessment right there. I'm glad uh, Yori sparked my my creativity. I'd probably rather do his than mine, to be honest. Sounds a lot more fun. 
I cannot wait for Monday morning. Dan walking into the training ground with a chicken under his arm. Hey, it's right. coming. It's I'm agility time. Get it. I need that. To be I honest, find that chicken now. To be fair, I think son versus chicken will be the funnest one. Yeah. 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 My son. Gosh dang. After I give him a little chocolate milk that he's just all over the place. So I got to remember that. <laughs> no sugar for that guy. Lads, absolutely quality. Um, I know it was a bit of tongue-in-cheek at the end, a bit of fun, but I, I knew it would be really good this episode. I've, I absolutely loved it. I hope there's been some great value, which I'm sure there has for all the listeners. Um, has any, have you got any closing thoughts just to wrap things up? You're always starting with yourself. Um, no, I feel like I'm constantly repeating myself. Just if you're going to use assessments, make sure they influence your training process. And then afterwards, revisit, see whether you actually it drive the adaptations that you wanted to see and just repeat that process. Uh, make sure you're always critical of what you use and why you use it. Um, and if you have to influence other members and members in your staff, you know, you can use the data. Uh, you might have to adjust assessments from here from time to time, um, but try to stick to your core principles and you're probably going to be fine. Don, yourself, anything just to wrap up? Uh, just gratitude. I learned a lot from all you guys. Uh, I would just tell everybody else who's on social, Yori does a really good job uh, on his IG, explaining stuff, making it really simple, sparking ideas. Definitely helps me out. Uh, trying to do the same thing and encourage people to say, hey, here's how I do stuff and learn from that. So I would encourage people to go to his Instagram and check him out or whatever other social platforms you do. I think you do a good job. So that's just gratitude and praise for me. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. Incredible. And yeah, and guys, both, both of these guys, absolutely quality, not just in terms of this podcast, but the stuff that they both put out. So go and give them a follow. Um, and Instagram, Daniel P. Guzman, Yuri Pagel on Instagram as well. And then, Dan, you're over on Twitter as well, aren't you? But I know you put a lot, lot of stuff over on Instagram. Um, but, mm -hmm. lads, I just want to say huge thank you for coming on. It's great to catch up. I absolutely loved that episode. That was quality. Um, and, yeah, Yuri, thank you very much for staying awake and contributing. Really appreciate it. Um, and, lads, best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks, boys. Thank you. Cool. Big thank you again for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate everybody's support. This was a super, super fun episode. Two absolutely brilliant practitioners, but also, more importantly, brilliant people. Like, really, really enjoyed spending the time on the podcast, not only on their individual episodes, but to bring Dan and Yuri together for this episode. It was really enjoyable. They've not actually met before. Um, so this was their first time interacting. So it was brilliant to sort of be a fly on the wall around some of the discussions that they were going through. Go and check them out. They're both over on Instagram. Uh, Daniel is at Daniel P. Guzman. And Yuri is just his name. So Yuri Pagel. And then Dan is over on Twitter as well. So he's the same. So Dan, at Daniel P. Guzman over on Twitter. I think initially, takeaways from this one is that we need to have more of these conversations. Really open no real agenda, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it opens some really good discussions around what we do and, and, more importantly, why we do it. Question it a little bit, not in a negative way, but just open discussions on experiences and question how we can do things differently and if we do need to do things differently as well. Some uh, points that I wrote down, Yuri mentioned things being prescriptive and descriptive. 
So that was like one of his pointers to go to for adding any sort of screen, uh, screening in with his players. We talked about bucketing players. I think it was Dan that brought up like bucketing players, putting players in different groups for certain attributes and certain tests from scores. Um, when we got into actually talking about testing as well, we spoke a lot about the psychology of testing, which I think there's something big in that, that putting players in that sort of position where they are going through a test can be quite challenging. And is, are we getting the results that we want from that? Um, and also the fact that it is a skill. And some of these things that we are testing, we have to question, are we repeating them throughout the season and letting the players learn the skill? Or are they having to learn the skill as part of the test? I think that's quite an important discussion um, to make. And then the, both the lads agreed as well that any that like a lot of the football fitness-based work, the testing that goes on, should come from practice or the games. Because um, that's about as, well, it's as specific as we're going to get, isn't it? So rather than try and replicate them in certain tests, can we? there's a lot of tech of all, um, available now. Can we utilise that more? and start monitoring players through uh, the actual practice and, and game scenarios as well. And then the other thing was how we use the data. So um, questioning what data are we using most often and also how we're putting that into practice as well. Like, are we, are we using things? The lads made a great point in terms of we do collect something sometimes, not necessarily to use it there and then, but it's something that we might refer back to uh, going forward so I do, I do think that is a good point as well but I hope you enjoyed this episode I like I said, I've said loads of times already I found this really really good a really fun episode to record so I hope you took plenty from it as well please as always give it a share uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook however you share it chuck it into WhatsApp groups I would really appreciate everyone sharing this episode and getting it out to as many people as possible the listeners are growing all the time and it's coming organically from, from you guys listening and sharing the message. So I really do appreciate it. And I'll wrap things up there and speak to you again next week in episode 163.